You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm wondering if when you heard that passage you had a a, a wow reaction. Um, did you think, wow, that is a radical passage. I've never heard anything so radical come from the mouth of God. And chances are that you didn't have that reaction. It doesn't seem all that radical at all, does it? In fact, it sounds downright pleasant. Build houses and settle down. That's sort of what Jessica and Austin and Alex and Lauren have done. They've gone out and got themselves some houses and just recently and plant gardens and eat what you produce. Uh, you have this picture of the farmer's market maybe, but this is also talking about going out and being productive and, and being part of the culture and engaging. It sounds helping the, the places where we work and the people that we are engaged with do well. And, and that sounds sort of pleasant, doesn't it? It sounds sort of good. And, and marry and have sons, isn't that what the Brinks have just done with one of their daughters and the Ananuchis have done with two of their children this year? An increase in number, my goodness. North Point knows how to increase in number. How many children have we had come into this congregation and still more on the way? Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. This seems very natural to us, not at all radical. It seems like sensible and practical advice. In fact, it almost seems warm and fuzzy. But if that's the response you have, and that's certainly the response that I've had as I've heard this passage preached on many times, we're missing the shock value. We're a little bit of detached from the context in which this passage was written. The people of Israel are in great despair. They've just been conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon. They're captives newly arrived in Babylon. They've been taken there after the sacking of Jerusalem. The walls have been torn down. The land is lost. Their homes have been destroyed and the temple is desecrated. The place they're being told to settle down is Babylon, enemy territory. And to get just a sense of how horrific that is, I'm going to read Psalm 137 to you. This is the Psalm that they put together as they arrived in Babylon in captivity. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy, and they said, sing us one of those songs of Zion, tormenting them. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried, and they did. Tear it down to its foundations, and that's what they did. Daughters of Babylon, doomed to their destruction. Happy is the one who repays you, according to what you have done for us. There's a real cry here for justice. 
Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks, just as you did to us. You see here quite clearly that to seek the peace and the purity of this city is to seek the peace and purity of the enemy, the invader, those opposed to God and his purposes. Seek the city, seek their prosperity and help them develop and grow their city. Shouldn't we be subverting it? Shouldn't we be tearing it down? How can we think about houses and crops and food and marriage and children where we, when we're in commando territory behind enemy lines? You can see here so clearly why God needs to write them a letter. This was anything but what they would naturally have wanted to do. This is a radical request from them. It would be like being asked to, be, to help a Nazi regime flourish after they had conquered the people. God is very clear here about why. He says, if Babylon prospers, you will prosper. Let me read verse 6. Oh, uh, sorry, verse. Uh, uh, no, verse 7, sorry. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray for the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper. So what does it mean to prosper? We need to work out what that is. What does it mean in a sense to experience God's providence? And how do we help Babylon or the Babylons wherein thrive? So those are the questions we're going to dig into this passage and look at. What does it mean to prosper? What is the prospering that's being talked about here, the thriving that's being talked about here? What is this experience of God's providence? And how do we, in fact, help Babylon thrive? So what does it mean to experience God's providence, his proactive care? So God's providence here means that we are not abandoned, but under kingly rule and fatherly concern. And if you're interested in what that looks like, I encourage you to go and read Psalm 145, a beautiful picture of how God's providence works for us. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. And when we think about God's providence or his flourishing of us, we usually think about that in terms of nature and history. God upholds and sustains the entire universe. So in that sense, God does not compete with science. He wrote science into existence. And the sun rises on the evil and the good. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And all of a sudden, as we start to think about providence, we start to get a little bit of dissonance here. Where is that justice? Where, what's going on there? Why does it rain on both the just and the unjust? Why does it rise, the sun rise on the evil and the good? Is our picture not big enough here? Then we look at God's providence historically. God is the Lord of history. Although we hear a lot because we come to church about Judah and about Israel, in reality, they were tiny, insignificant kingdoms surrounded by huge powers worthy of tombs of historical resource. Says the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, they all dominated world history. Judah and Israel were very insignificant. But God doesn't do battle with history. He writes history into existence, and he chose to write the story of redemptive history through this tiny, little, insignificant nation of Israel. 
The cry of the covenant faithful is never silent because the Lord reigns. So we have this idea then of providence, God working through nature, God working through history. But what about the personal? The universe is big and history expands across epochs. But does his providence, his care, extend to silly little individuals like us with our petty concerns? So not only is it a possibility that this is true, it is necessary to believe this. It is faithful to believe this. Christian humility is not downplaying our value or worth. We are priceless. Christian humility comes from recognising that it is God who puts that value on us. He knew us before he formed us in the womb. He knows every hair on our head. And he knows the plans he has to prosper us. Verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Now as you look at this, note that God knows the plans that he has for us, but he doesn't necessarily divulge them. Parents have plans for their children too. We have many of you who are pregnant. Are you sitting there talking to that in vitro child saying, you know what? We're thinking of buying you a bassinet and then we might do this or that. Or if your child's two or three, do you start talking and discussing with him what school you might send him to? No. Those who have a sense of providential control over other, other people, sometimes they share, sometimes they don't. We don't always know how God's providence is working out, but we have to trust that his providence is there. And certainly we have to trust that it's not just in nature, not just historical, but is intensely and intentionally purposeful. We need to believe that order exists even if we only see disorder, that life is not random, that there is a purpose, and that God's plans are good plans. And as we're talking about providence, we need to remember the words of John Stott here. Providence is neither fatalism, which is sort of a cruel, mechanical, unfeeling unwinding, nor is it deterministic. What we do matters. If you remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, he's sold into slavery of Egypt by his brothers. And when he's revealed to his brothers, he turns to them and he says, you meant it for harm, but God meant it for good. There's a sense in which Joseph in that, when he was sold into Potiphar's house uh, into slavery, he chose to work hard, to be faithful, although he couldn't make sense of why it was happening. When he was thrown in prison, he again chose to be faithful, to choose in a sense, the providential lot that was laid out for him, trusting that God was going to work that for good. When he was appointed uh, as into some of these high government places, again, he saw his role as being faithful, not defined by those positions, but defined by his call to God to act in a way which was faithful to the Lord. And then finally, at the end of the story, it turns around and he's able to save the people uh, the Hebrews from, uh, from starvation in the time of the famine, and he sees how God has worked it. So even though the act was done by his brothers, he sees that God's providence is working through it. And that's true also here, 
for the people of Israel and the Judeans here. They are returned to they return to to uh, Jerusalem after 70 years, more ready and more able to wait for the Messiah. And what about for you and me? What does it mean for us to work within God's providence to help the Babylons that we live in to flourish before we're called to the new Jerusalem? See, it's not this prosperity, this flourishing, this experience of God's uh, providence is not a prosperity gospel. God's plan for the future is what determines his providence in the present. It's really important for us to understand. Sometimes it will feel like we are captives in Babylon. Sometimes it will feel like we've been sold into slavery. That, that we are being oppressed. But we need to trust that God's providence in the present is a view to a future purpose and fulfillment. So given that that's what providence means, what it means to thrive, to see people do well, how do we help Babylon thrive? How do we help our Babylons, the places that we've been put to thrive? Now, this is not our home. Our home is with God in the new heaven and the new earth. We are in exile and we need to realize that. But right now we are here. One day we'll be in the new heaven and the new earth. Come Lord Jesus, come. But right now we are here. Just recently, as many of you know, I flew to Australia. And in, when I was in Australia, part of that experience was just awesome. I got to go scuba diving with my son. We saw big loggerhead turtles and sharks and just hanging out with him was just wonderful. Part of it was difficult, working through some family logistics and doing different things. Now the part of it that was fun made me think, you know what, I'm not even sure I want to go get on that plane. I'm sort of happy having fun in Australia, it's pretty nice here. The part of it that was not so much fun made me think, I'm heading to the, uh, uh, to the the gate where the airport leaves now. I'm going to spend the next five days waiting for the plane because I don't want to sit through all of this nonsense that felt like nonsense, right? But it was work that needed to be, to be done. And so that experience of going to Australia was like living in Babylon. C.S. Lewis describes that first piece like playing in the sewer. We get so enamored with Babylon that we don't realize how great the coming kingdom of God is. We forget that we're exiles living in this uh, this, this broken, messed up world. And in fact, we've probably arranged this broken, messed up world with all its toys and all of the things that God has given us uh, to really suit us. And we're thinking, I'm, I'm happy to play here. This is good. I've lost track of whatever my purpose or mission was. I'm no longer engaged in understanding how I fit into God's providence. But life is good. I don't want to fly back to America. I just want to keep scuba diving every day. Or... It's what Dan Wells, a British theologian, calls airport lounge syndrome. It's really unpleasant here. All I want to do is sit in the airport lounge and wait for that plane, twiddling my thumbs. I really don't want to do anything else. I really don't want to engage. It's unpleasant. Just twiddle my thumbs in the airport lounge. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I'm waiting. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I'm waiting. When's that plane going to take off? So, as we start thinking about that, the first place to start is verse 4. Did the Babylonians bring the, uh, 
those from Jerusalem, those in captive to Babylon. Maybe. But let's read what it said in verse 4. Certainly they were the ones that physically brought them, but this is the words of the text. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Starts by realizing that we are here because God put us here. This is where I belong now because this is where God has placed me for now. Our homes, our families, our schools, our offices, God has placed us here for a purpose. For a purpose. In each of those areas of life, we need to sit there and wonder, am I suffering from playing in the sewer syndrome or am I suffering from airport lounge syndrome or am I focusing on being part of God's providence as it unworks? Am I helping each of these Babylons that I live in to flourish and to survive? Is God at work in you? Is God working through you? And what work, you ask? And that's a good question, right? Some of us want to say, God, I want to do great things for you. I really do. I want to do great things. Give me power. Give me position. Give me the, the, let me do miracles. Put me in, in wonderful places. And God's response to that is probably, you know what? You're already great to me. I already love you. You're already incredibly valuable to me. Okay, and if you know that, you'll be okay working this out in the ordinary, where I've put you now. You don't have to keep asking me to put you in these uh, wonderful places or giving you this excellent, these excellent miraculous powers. I want you to work in the ordinary. I want you to work in the day-to-day. -day. I want you to work in the, in the trenches and, and know that you're incredibly valued to me. Your identity doesn't come from any of that. And if that happens to you and you know where your identity is, it's, in, it's incidental and you'll use it the right way. You won't get caught up in false pride and maybe God is protecting you from that. So we read verse 7, the first part of verse 7, and, and we see here what the summary verse is for helping Babylon thrive. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you. So we're looking there. There's an expectation that God has put us in this place and that he's going to bear fruit, that there's a calling on our lives to help these places flourish. Our workplace flourish, our families flourish, our communities flourish, our churches flourish, uh, whatever clubs or activities you're involved in, to help them all to, to flourish. We can expect God to work through us in his providence. And when can we expect that? Verses 5 to 6. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what you produce, marry, have sons, daughters, find wives uh, to give and, and, and give for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that you too may have many sons and daughters. Increase in numbers. Do not uh, increase in numbers. Do not decrease. And so what we're saying here is that we can expect God to work through us in his providence when we are willing to live life with, intertwine our lives with, get in the mess of life with, when we are willing to connect with the Babylons that we're 
engaged with. And that means connecting in ways which are hard and difficult and, dare I say it, dependent. This word intertwined, I think, is really there. And that's hard. That's hard, right? It's easier to say, let me separate, let me pull away, let me not bear the burdens, especially of these people who, who don't share the same values or priorities as me, especially these people who in many ways feel like enemies or competition or I'm not that close to. How do I engage and intertwine in them? How do I push myself beyond all the barriers that get in the way of that? And we see that in the second part of verse 7. Pray to the Lord for Babylon, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And this is an alignment prayer, right? Can you imagine how hard it would be to build these intensely intertwined, emotionally connected, economically connected, dependent relationships with people who had sacked your city, who had destroyed the walls, desecrated your city, killed your children? This is an alignment prayer. It's a prayer for wisdom. It's a prayer for faithfulness. It's a prayer for protection against both the playing in the sewer and the airport lounge syndrome. It's a prayer to stay on point, on mission. So we have this cycle here of praying, connecting, or expecting, and we expect because we connected, and we connect because we prayed. Pray, connect, expect. And you know what, this last piece, this idea of having a framework of seeing what it means to engage, there's an intellectual piece to that, right? I get that. We've talked about that probably since the inception of North Point, this idea of every square inch, that we're engaged in every piece of the world. And we can all put it together intellectually, but can we put it together relationally? You see this, this piece here, pray, connect, expect, is a refining process that goes through a practical cycle, right? We pray, we connect, we expect, and then we pray reflectively. And then we connect again based on that reflection. And we expect God to work. And then we pray reflectively. And you see what's going on there? It's a relational connection to God. We're progressively more and more not just connected to, the, to Babylon, but to God in that. And we're defining something else as we talk about this, that pray, connect, expect, pray, connect, expect, that dependent, humble, submitted approach to God, which isn't just an academic framework. It isn't just a paradigm or a theology. It's our lived experience in relationship with God. We're defining something very different there, and we can see that in verses 12 to 14. Then... You will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart and I will be found by you. Pray, connect, expect as more than just an evangelical strategy, more than just a, a way of outreaching, it is a way of learning and growing and developing dependency on God. Now, what does it mean to bring shalom or peace to a city, peace and purity to a city? It is, of course, the, the Hebrew word shalom, which is translated as peace, but really means much more than just no conflict. There's a sense of completeness or wholeness or total welfare or, or um, ultimate good here. 
And this means that we need to be looking at the city and saying, okay, what's broken and how can I be part of trying to do something about that? And that is often going to be sacrificial. It means looking to serve. It means having a heart which is open to be moved, a prayerful heart which is always trying to be oriented towards the flourishing of the city, one that tries to connect, that's committed to connecting and reflecting. And I want to say that it's not less than that. It is certainly that, but it is also much more than that. You see, shalom can only be realized under the rule of the prince of shalom. When we go and we try to do something which is good objectively, so we try to bring about some justice in the, in the world, that's a good thing to do. But if we are doing it because we are ambassadors of Christ, it's a relationally good thing to do, not just an objectively good thing to do, not just a thing which is good for the world, but it's actually providentially connected to the outworking of what God is doing. You see, the raising of Lazarus was a great foretaste of the resurrection that we hope for in the new age. But the reality is Lazarus died again. And so we can go about doing whatever we want in terms of social justice, and we should, and we should, but it should always be being done because we are ambassadors of or image bearers of the Prince of Peace. And we should be pointing to the Prince of Peace. If we are salt and light, we demonstrate kingdom values. We do our work well. We pursue the good of the people we work with. We develop their gifts and talents. We seek their peace and prosperity. And we point them to the Prince of Peace. We commit to praying for the kingdom's influence on the place where he has put us, not an airport lounge or a sewer to play in. And we proclaim the lordship of the Prince of Peace. We can't exclude that peace. So I want to conclude by saying this. I sense at North Point in myself and in many of you what I call a holy restlessness. Now, it's not catastrophic or dramatic, just little ideas and thoughts and meanders that go on in, in frustrations perhaps in Danvers, in the North Shore, at North Point, for me in Tewksbury Hospital, in my workplace, with my mom and my sister. Parts of the world that I'm in, that God has put me in, that I've been placed by God in, where flourishing isn't happening as I would like to see it or as God has called me to see it. Now, I'm not forgetting, I am remembering that it's God's plan for the future that determines his providence in the present. Any restlessness that I have about his providence is not holy and it's something that I need to repent of. I say holy restlessness because I am convicted that I need to make real changes to be more intentional about helping the Babylonians that I'm, the Babylon, Babylons that I've been placed in to thrive. And I'm also convicted that North Point is not doing everything it can to help you guys 
to work out what it means to pray for, connect with, and expect God to work in your Babylons. Now, don't get me wrong. Many of you are doing a great job of this. And I know your hearts, and I know you all want to be doing a great job of this. This desire in you and this conviction in the leadership of the church is God being faithful to us. This is God saying to us, respond. Respond to what I'm calling you to. So pray for, connect with, and expect God to act are going to be the themes of this year's sermon series, all of them. And we are going to work at ways to love Danvers practically, to help it thrive. And we've begun the refining process. Pray, connect, expect. Pray, connect, expect. And this is how we become participants in God's providence or vessels that are used by him. But it's always more than that. And we can never forget that it's more than that. You see, it's how we seek and connect with God. And I'm going to read again that passage that I read before, but I'm going to go right to the end of the passage. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And this is the peace, right? This is the connecting peace. And I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and bring you back to the place from where I carried you back into exile. This pray, connect, expect is connecting us, reminding us, making sense of the fact that the coming kingdom is where, we, where our real home is. So it's not like we have to choose. We're in a place where we want to see this world flourish. But here's the deal. The plane ride to the new, to the coming kingdom, the, the seats are not fully occupied yet. And one of the reasons that God, one of the missions we're on is, from God is to go and find the people who are supposed to be in those seats. We don't know who they are, but we do know that by helping the city flourish and by promoting the Prince of Peace. You want to know when? Come, Lord Jesus, come. You want to know when that plane takes off? It's when the seats are full. Scripture makes that clear. And we are here on mission. And it's a big mission. And more importantly, it's our relational mission that gives us a context of who God is and how we relate to him, as well as connects us to the promise of the coming kingdom. Let's pray. Let God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. Help us remember it is radical. Help us remember that we are in exile, that this is not our home, but help us love this place. Help us love it well. Help us help it to thrive and help us to proclaim the Prince of Peace loudly and boldly as we walk in the Babylons that you have placed us in. And Father, help us to do that always relationally with you, prayerfully, connectedly, expectingly. Pray, connect, expect. Help us to be people who live our relationship in mission for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.